Well, as we continue our magical mystery tour today, we're looking at the issue of temptation. As you look at different religions, and we've been taking a tour at how different religions and different religious thoughts deal with the issue of different ideas like God and today temptation, and specifically how do we deal with what causes temptation. Now some literature, like the song you, you listened to from the 60s, talk a lot about temptation, engage in a lot of temptation, and the idea is, well, you know, there's just a little white rabbit and Alice falls it down the hole and who knows what you get involved in and who knows how you can control what happens to you. But actually, for most religions, evil and temptation has a source. And for many people, they call that, uh, that source the devil. But I want to give you a couple different ones uh, because I think the different views of temptation and evil are pretty different throughout the world. Let's start here in America. In America, the Native American idea of evil comes from a trickster. Not really like the devil, a big source of evil. Um, the tricksters are the coyotes. A lot like that song where Alice follows the rabbit down the rabbit hole. Every once in a while there's some coyotes in your life that sort of trick you into making unhealthy decisions or inappropriate decisions. Let's not get too carried away that this is a source of evil like the devil that you hear about in Christianity. But there are tricksters in your life. So that's one view to where temptation comes from, tricksters. Another view, same thing in America. Now we're going to go a little bit more toward Utah for Mormonism. In Mormonism there's a teaching that God is the father of all. God made Jesus, and God made the devil. The devil fell away from God, and Jesus maximized his potential. And so really, the question in life is, are you going to be like the devil, one of God's sons, who squandered his potential, or are you going to be like Jesus, one of God's sons, who maximized his potential? Very different view on how we deal with evil and how we deal with temptation. Now let's move over uh, to the Middle East. The Quran speaks a lot about evil and temptation. It calls the devil one of the jinns. It's where we get the idea of genies, the jinns. The Satan is a mischievous one. He was the one that deceived Adam and Eve. But there's lots of evil spirits that are trying to get you and I into trouble. So be careful of the genes or the genies, they might say. Now, in Hinduism, we have a very different idea. In Hinduism... There is not a source of evil, there's not a devil, there's not a deceiver, there's a force. If you're a Star Wars fan, Hinduism is a lot like Star Wars. There's a good side of the force, and there's a dark side of the force. There isn't a specific person, like God, or because you can be God. There isn't a specific devil, the source of evil, because you can tap into that as well. And so instead of evil or temptation being caused by a person or by you not maximizing your own potential, it's actually caused by whether or not you're tapping into the good side of the force or the bad side of the force. Now, contrast that with the Greeks and Romans. So the Greeks and Romans, as we move our map here, we have this idea that Zeus was a man and he was the father of the gods, but he wasn't necessarily good. I mean, Zeus was the most you know, lousy dad you've ever seen. He's sleeping around with anybody and everybody. You know, he lies, he cheats. So if you need help with your lying, Zeus isn't going to help much. But Zeus had a brother, and his name was Hades. And Hades isn't inherently bad. He does some good things. He and Zeus helped uh, save the rest of their brothers and sisters from their dad, who ate them when they were young. Bizarre Greek myth. But Hades is just in charge of the underworld, and so he causes temptation occasionally, but Zeus could help you get into trouble, and Hades could help you get into trouble. You still think all religions are the same? (laughs) 
And so with all these different ideas of different religions and what causes temptation and, 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 and what is the source of evil, I want to introduce you today to the Bible's view on temptation and even this creature called the devil who lies and deceives us. We're going to try and unspookify that idea and make it very, very practical. Because the Bible says that evil is not an equal power with good, it's the absence of good. And that there is this creature who wants to introduce himself to us to destroy us. He was a fallen angel who rebelled against God, and he's going to be destroyed in the end, and he wants to destroy as many people with him as he goes. So let me introduce you to somebody the Bible calls the devil. So a little sympathy for the devil from the Rolling Stones. You know, when you start talking about the devil, everybody gets kind of freaked out. I mean, that's weird. I mean, the idea that there's a source of good, a person that would be the personification of good, God, doesn't freak people out. But the minute you try and personify evil, the idea that evil might have a source and it might be something called a Diablo. People are like, okay, where's the door? This is a little spooky, a little strange. Maybe you grew up watching horror movies or poltergeists. You're like, I don't want to get involved in this kind of weirdness. So as we talk about the devil this morning, I want to do it in a way that tries to demystify it. And let's start here. Many of us have heard this song at a concert a dozen times. Me, going back to the 1960s. And here are the lyrics from that song. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a souls to waste. And I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. So my point is, the Rolling Stones have been introducing us and singing about the devil for a long time. And at no point did we sit in that Rolling Stones concert and go, I'm really concerned about this. You are not having any kind of existential experience about the weirdness of the devil. You are rocking along. So if the Rolling Stones can talk about the devil in a concert, why don't we give ourselves freedom for 30 minutes to talk about maybe the devil in church, right? And specifically, I want to show you a book, uh, some of the concepts from a book written by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in this book, written uh, in the time of World War II, so Germany is on his mind. You'll hear him reference Germans a lot because I think we're, people were worried about the Nazis during that time. And the book is a series of letters written by one of the devil's chief tempters, and his name is Screwtape. And he's writing to his nephew Wormwood, who's a tempter in training. And he's trying to teach this young tempter how to destroy patients' lives, human beings being the patients. How do we operate on the patients' of human beings to lead them into temptation and to destroy their lives. And the young tempter keeps trying to use big, grandiose approaches. But Uncle Screwtape is trying to teach him that subtlety is the way to get people into temptation. Subtlety is the way to destroy people's lives. So I want to show you a couple clips of a dramatized version. This is also currently a Broadway play, playing up on Broadway. It's been to Cincinnati a few times. But really the application I'm going to focus on, which is whether you believe in Satan or not, there is certainly patterns of temptation that we can avoid. And the Bible is so practical on some ways we can avoid temptation and avoid destruction of the things we care about. So, this is a little piece from uh, C.S. Lewis' dramatized Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape is instructing young Wormwood on the secrets of subtle strategies of temptation. Let's watch. 
Let me show you an incident from the past. What is this place? Have you never taken your patient to the British Museum? No. Oh, you should. It can be an invaluable tool if handled properly. Hours lost in reading, in viewing great displays of mankind without thinking for a moment about man, meaning the actual human being standing only a few feet away. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll see, with my patient reading on that bench, how it almost went pear-shaped for me. Twenty years of work, very nearly lost, all because of one idle thought while visiting this museum. What idle thought? Listen. All these displays and artifacts, all these remnants of history, is this all we have to show for our lives? Oh, uh -oh. Yes, and this from a sound atheist. The enemy, of course was at his elbow in a moment ready to nurture that thought to lead the patient to considering disgusting ideas like the mortality of man and the possibility of eternity. <sighs> if I had lost my head and begun to attempt to defense by argument, I should have been undone, but I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested it was just about time he had some lunch. Mm. A bacon sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> the enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion. You know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. And that line of thought, Is this all we have to show for our lives? <laughs> At least I think that must have been his line, for I said to the patient, Quite. In fact, much too important to tackle at the end of the morning. True. Much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind. Of course. Right. There's a lovely cafe just around the corner. <laughs> Once he was in the streets, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and uh, a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up in a museum with his readings, a healthy dose of real life, meaning the bus and the newsboy, precisely, was enough to show him how all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd had a narrow escape, and in later years he was fond of talking about it. He is now safe in our father's house. Excellent. So I love the subtlety of that, and imagine writing prior to World War II when people wasted their time reading and going to museums. <laughs> Contrast that to every YouTube video, every phone we have, every iPad we have. Look at all the ways we can be distracted from contemplating what matters in life, the real meaning of life, where we should invest our time in, the people around us. How many of us have people around us and we don't even interact with them because we're so busy distracted by our devices, let alone a nice bacon sandwich? I love this idea that these strategies are more subtle, and the subtle strategies are the way to bring people into temptation. In fact, one of the greatest ones that's used and mentioned throughout the Bible, that if there's a Satan, and I believe there is, and if there's a source of evil, that one of the strategies he uses to destroy our life is being offended. And what I want to talk about today is that idea, because one of the most subtle strategies that's mentioned in Screwtape Letters, but also through the Bible, is that everyone 
you and I could be unoffendable, even in our current, offended by everything culture, if we refuse to take the bait of Uncle Screwtape. Uncle Screwtape will do anything he can to get us offended. And he's going to set four traps for us. And he's going to put some bait on each one of those four traps in hopes of getting us offended and tempted and destroying the things we care about and love. And if we can get this, if we can begin to apply this, if we can begin to understand this, this will save marriages. This will save relationships between son and daughters. This will help you overcome bitterness. This would save you at least 40% of your HR time at work if we could help people apply the principle of being unoffendable as a pathway to temptation. So I want to look at these four traps set by Uncle Wormwood, uh, sorry, Uncle Screwtape for us. And the first one is this. The bait of self-righteousness. I am offended by that. There's this idea that if we can in our own self of self-righteousness just nibble at the bait a little bit that says, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe she didn't do that. It plays on our own sense of morality. I'm just too good of a person to let this go. I'm too good of a person not to say something here. And so you actually, while eating the bait of self-righteousness, you actually tell yourself you're doing the right thing. I am offended. Doesn't look like a big deal. Certainly doesn't look like a pathway to destruction. It actually looks like a good thing. And that self-righteousness demonstrates itself with phrases like that. I can't believe. I would never have said. I never would have done. I wouldn't have forgotten. And I am offended. Jesus has got some powerful words about this. He turns to his disciples one day. He says, guys, it is impossible that no offenses will come. It's impossible. If you think you're going to finally have the right friends, live in the right neighborhood, live in the right state, that you're not going to be offended by anything anybody says, good luck. Welcome to a miserable life. It is impossible that no offenses should come. So they're going to come. It's impossible to not hear things that are offensive. But it is possible not be, to not be offended by those offensive things. He says, and I want my people, number one, to understand offensive things are going to happen. So don't be surprised by it. Number two, I don't want you, if possible, to be the cause of offense. Like leading a child astray. It would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck than to you offend people unnecessarily. And three, one of the ways you're going to keep from being offended is keep choosing to forgive. When you're tempted to, to be offended, say, I'm just going to forgive. Even if they didn't apologize, I'm just not going to carry that offense around. I'm not going to complicate my life with that. I'm going to stay free. Now, it doesn't feel like when you, when you reach and take the bite of the trap and it snaps on you, it doesn't feel like you're caught in the trap. It feels like you're morally superior to the person that you're judging. And Jesus says, don't fall for the subtle trap. Choose again and again and again to forgive, even seven times a day if you needed to. Stay out of that trap. He goes on a little bit later, and Paul writes about this, and he says, here's a secret. If you want to not be offended, if you want to not be caught into this destructive pattern, then number one, don't quarrel. 
But instead, have a gentle spirit toward your spouse, toward your kids, toward your colleagues, toward those you work with. Don't quarrel all the time, but be gentle to all. Develop in yourself the ability to teach, to be teachable, to be patient. Bring some humility. Correct one another who are in opposition, but do it from a place of humility. I too could have done that. I might have been tempted if I was in that situation. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. That when we quarrel, when we're not humble, when we're unteachable, we're actually nibbling at the bait of offense and subtly setting ourselves up for destruction. And so the Bible is trying to rescue you and I from the kind of temptations that lead us into destructive patterns. Now, in the book Screwtape Letters, young Wormwood is sitting at the bedside of his patient, and he's trying to figure out how to scare him into doing the right thing. And so he's, this young whippersnapper, is trying to pretend, all right, what should I do? All right, I think I'll wake him up and I'll be like, oh, I'm the devil! No, no, that's not going to work, that's not going to work. How about, um, <laughs> no, no, Uncle Wormwood, uh, Screwtape shows up and says, Wormwood, what are you doing? I just thought maybe I'd scare him into Fear! Fear, you young tempsters are all the same. All drama, all the time. No, the secret to destroying a patient is subtlety. Why use fear and demonstrative actions when you can pretend you don't exist? Have them laugh at the idea that the devil is a man in red pajamas and a pitchfork while all the time get them to be offended by something their neighbor said, offended by something their spouse did. That's how you destroy a family. Subtlety. It's amazing when you have a special needs child how people say things that they don't even know how offensive they are. Stuff like, hey, if you knew your son had autism, do you think you would have, uh, you think you'd still adopt him? If your wife knew you were going to be ugly, do you think she'd still marry you? No, is that some outside voice? Um, yeah, oh, sorry. I mean, just offensive things. And because of the complexity of uh, dealing with special needs, often just people don't understand some of the challenges we have. And so offensive things come my way a lot. I was talking to somebody recently who just said some things that were so offensive that can be repeated, really, and the person was totally unaware of it. And I said, listen, I'd like to work with you. I'd like to find a workable solution here and... I'm choosing right now not to be offended by your offensive comments. Because I want us to work together to solve this. And that phrase really caught me. One, because I thought it was hilarious. I'm not offended by your offensive comments. But two, I thought, you know, that's really the spirit I want to have. There's going to be offensive comments, Jesus says. It's impossible not to be offended. But it is possible to choose not to be offended by offensive things. You're going to be free. You're not going to let other people control you. Other people's opinions control you. Other things you disagree with control you. I remember some neighbors, good friends, supposedly all Christians. I can't speak to whether they were or weren't, but they would have claimed to be Christians. And yet, you know what destroyed their friendship? Taking the bait of offense. Like we've all seen this many times. It's the classic example where one person... Their kids were hanging out with the other family's kids, and one person didn't like the parenting style of the other person. And so, I'm offended that you would be so conservative. I'm offended that you'd be so liberal. I'm offended you'd let your kids do this. I'm offended you wouldn't let your kids do that. 
And that offense turned into talking to husbands. Can you believe what they do? I'm offended by that. I don't know if we should. I'm offended by that. And then the husbands are involved, right? Now the husbands are offended. And then they say something about each other. And now I'm offended you would say something. And all of a sudden a marriage begins to crack. A family begins to crack. Friendships begin to crack. Neighborhoods begin to crack. Not through some big demon showing up and needing holy water. Simply by people choosing bitterness and offense over and over. So the first trap of Uncle Screwtape is taking the bait of offense. The second one is usually follows the first, and that is taking the bait of bitterness. If self-righteousness is, I'm offended, bitterness is, I can't let go. I know I should, I know I should forgive, blah, 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 blah. I can't let this go. It's so offensive, it was so destructive, and maybe it's actually truly that offensive. But now the second piece of bait is, but I'm going to keep nibbling and eating at the bait of bitterness. I can't let this go. The Bible says this. The Bible says, and then many will be offended. It's talking about the last days, toward the end of time. 2,000 years later, here we are. In our culture where everybody's offended all the time about everything. And many will be offended in that day. And when you get offended, you betray one another. And you end up hating each other who disagree with you. And many false prophets rise up and encourage you to be offended and bitter. And they deceive people into encouraging this kind of offense and hatred. And because of this, lawlessness will abound. And look at this. The love of many will grow cold. This is so true. You know how friendship grows cold? You know how marriage grows cold? Do you know how staff morale grows cold? It almost always, you trace it back, somebody got offended and somebody got bitter and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And pretty soon, the whole work environment, your whole productivity got destroyed all because of something as simple as bitterness in your environment. And the whole time you say, but I can't let it go. I've got a right to be angry. I've got a right to be mad. I've got a right to hold on to this. And the whole time, who are you destroying? The person you're mad at rarely cares. Right? They don't care. They don't like you anyway. You're only destroying yourself. Reminds me when I was a kid, I loved uh, doing contraptions. So my dad gave me a room in the basement. And so because of that, I could put, uh, you know, eye screws in and pulleys in and ropes and all kinds of stuff. So I was always inventing. I watched Goonies. It had a huge impact on my life. So my life was pretty much about putting Goonies contraptions in my, in my basement. And so I was designing this trap. And so I took an afghan and I threw it on the ground and I put a string through it, multiple strings up like a net. I'd been watching too much Roadrunner and Coyote. So... As I had this up, it went up to the ceiling where I had a pulley, over to another pulley on the other side of the room, which came down to a giant set of weights. I had about 250 pounds of weights strung through this thing. Now, clearly, I did not use them to work out because I was, during that time in my life, making Goonie contraptions. All right, so I take the weights. We're about 200 pounds. Side note, I weighed about 100 pounds in those days. That will be important in a second. I then set the 200-pound weights onto this stool that had a rounded, that'll be important in a second, slick stool. I then went to examine my trap, checking to make sure it was all spread out, 
checking to make sure that it, the weights begin to move behind my back. This looks good over here. Dun, 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 dun. Whoosh! Oh my goodness, the weights fell down off the stool, the rope pulled through the pulley, the, the net worked perfectly, by the way, scooped me up by my left foot only, dangling from the ceiling, whoa, 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 and I cannot get out because I weigh 100 pounds and the weights weighed 200 pounds. So I do what anyone does, I go, Mom, help, help, help! Now this has happened before cried wolf too many times on this kind of thing. Maybe not this trap, but many others. My mom's upstairs trying to get something done. I'll be down in a minute. No, I need you now. At some level, I would imagine she's offended that I'm interrupting her schedule. I'm interrupting the work she needs to get done. What could be so important that my son needs me to come downstairs now? Meanwhile, as I'm dangling between heaven and earth upside down, I'm becoming increasingly offended that I have such a lousy mom who would not come down and rescue their son who's dangling from the ceiling. What kind of a mother wouldn't care about this? So, as I'm dangling, we had this little trick. I could just, with my foot dangled on the, on the roof, reach the phone. And we had this number you could hit, can't remember what it was now, but like 2576. And if you hung up, it would do a fast busy, and you could make the phone ring. So I'm dangling upside down. Two, five, seven, nine. Hang up. Ring, ring. It had a fast ring. Ring, 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 ring. So my mom picks up. And I grab the phone. What are you doing? I need you downstairs right now. Why are you calling me on the phone? Because I'm caught in my own trap. What? She comes running down the stairs so I can hear her. She looks at me. <gasps> she didn't say this out loud, but I could see in her eyes. Look at my dumb kid. But she didn't say that. Oh, let me help you. Let me pick up the weights and help me. And she got me out of my own trap. Well, this is the same thing that happens with bitterness. You set this trap for somebody else. You're going to get them. They're going to know how mad you are. You're going to be able to tell your story about how Roy can't let this go. You end up getting sucked up in your own trap. And you are caught dangling for years decades even, robbing yourself of your own happiness, robbing yourself of your own freedom, robbing yourself of your own joy, all because you're choosing to nibble at the bait of Uncle Screwtape. Instead of saying, as hard as it is, for the sake of my own freedom, I am going to be unoffendable, and I'm going to choose not to eat, though I would have a right to, from the bait of bitterness. Now, these don't always happen sequentially, but usually when you're offended and then you get bitter, you almost always step into number three, which is the bit and bait of gossip. Right? Because now that you're bitter, you've got to tell somebody. Because you've got to find out whose side they're on. You've got to find a friend who will say, you've really handled this well. You've got to find a friend who says they have really, they, they, the neighbor, your son, your spouse, your business partner, they were all wrong and you were all right. And gossip, as you begin to nibble at gossip, the real question with gossip is who's on my side? And you have the meeting where a leader makes a decision and then you have the real meeting, the meeting after the meeting, where everybody's like, what do you think of that decision? I thought it was stupid. I thought it was stupid too. So in the meeting, you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After meeting, you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Who, who makes these decisions? Who thought this was a good idea? And now gossip and dissension gets to flow through the company, flow through the family. I love how the Bible says it. Proverbs 18. The words of a talebearer. What was their word for gossiper back then? A talebearer. I've got a tale to tell. I'm bearing a tale about someone in our neighborhood or family. And the words of a gossip are like tasty trifles, tasty morsels, it says in one of the translations. It always tastes good to gossip about people. If it didn't taste good, we wouldn't do it. And the Bible's so honest to say, of course the bait looks good. It's fun to talk about people behind their back. It's not always productive. It's not always healthy. It doesn't lead you to a good place. But in the moment, of course, it's like a, a, a tasty morsel. Mmm. Mmm. And yet, when we choose to eat of those tasty morsels, it just ends with more offense, more bitterness, more gossip. More offense, more bitterness, more gossip. Later in the chapter, in verse 19, it says, A brother offended. It's harder to win him back. It's harder to win them back than a strong city. It is fortified. And their walls are up. They don't trust people anymore. They don't let people in. It's lonely in that city of offense. Your guards are up. It's hard for you to love anymore or trust any love, trust anyone anymore. And gossip creates walls. Offense creates walls that keep you from being known and knowing other people, and you end up in paranoia. Last couple of years, we had a situation in our creative team where we just felt like some gossip was beginning to spread, and so we sat down as a team and said, guys, haven't we said that we know we're going to make mistakes? I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. We said, let's give ourselves freedom to be a place that we can be real and make mistakes, right? We've also said that when somebody does something you don't agree with, or something you're offended by, we actually have a social covenant we've all signed to say we'll go talk directly to that person, right? Haven't we said that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all said that. Have we all done that? No, we, no, we have not all done that, right? There's a situation going on right now, and you know that this is not healthy. It's not encouraging trust. It's not encouraging the kind of relationship we want to have here. So I said, you know, as a leader, I would rather hear people's concerns inappropriately than not at all. But think how much better it would be if we heard it appropriately. Think how much time we wouldn't have wasted in the last weeks or months if we talked about this appropriately. Yeah. We just had a great conversation as a team to say, let's cut off this pattern before it creates the kind of environment we don't want to work in and we don't want to enjoy. And several folks said, yeah, you know, I realize I, I unintentionally got involved in that or, you know, I did intentionally get involved in that. It was just a great team dynamic of realizing It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you're a CEO or you're a mom or you're a stay-at-home dad. All of us in all of our environments can destroy the things we care about with gossip, bitterness, and offense. And if we don't address it head-on, it'll just keep spreading and it will keep destroying. Which brings us to our fourth piece of bait. And this is the bait of revenge. And especially when you're offended, you would say, and it would be objectively true, that you have a good reason to be offended. You have a good reason to be bitter. You have a good reason to gossip. It is then you've got a great reason to want revenge. And the problem with revenge is the more true what happened to you is, the harder it is not to eat from this trap. 
And what happens in this trap is you say, I have got to be the one to administer justice. I've got to be the one to keep track of what happened or didn't happen. I've got to be the one who brings about justice here. I've got to keep track of how many lightning bolts they deserve or don't, because if not, they're going to get away with it. To which the Bible is so practical here. Repay no one, no one. What does it mean by no one? If you read in the Greek, the word no one means no one. So as you're thinking to yourself, but not my, not if they, what about the situation where if you want to be free, if you want to be unoffendable, if you want to not get tied into this stuff, don't repay anyone, no one, evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And I love this. If it is possible, and it's not always possible, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all people. Now that's practical wisdom. If you can, and you always can't. If it's up to you, and it's not always up to you. Try and live peaceably with your ex. Try and live peaceably with your prodigal son. Try and live peaceably with the boss who fired you inappropriately. The business partner who seemed like he went off the deep end or she went off the deep end. If it's up to you, if it's possible... Try and live peaceably with all men. And here's how you do that. You've got to not take the bait of revenge. Here's how you do it. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Trust that God, there's a real God of justice, who can be the source of real justice. And give place for Him to bring about justice or wrath in the situation. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. I'll take care of it. Maybe not in your timing, not in the way you wanted. But the only way to not take the bait of revenge is to trust in a loving God who judges. Because if you don't think that there's a God who judges, you'll keep taking the role of judge yourself. He says, I'm going to let this go by handing it over to God. Say, God, I'm going to trust you to handle this. Though I haven't liked how you've handled it so far, but I'm going to trust that I'd rather have you carry this than me because it's tearing me apart. And I want to be free. And if you do that, you can be unoffendable. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. So where are you taking the bait? Are you easily offended? How many times do you feel self-righteous because you wouldn't go as slow as somebody else That might be one of mine. You wouldn't have dropped that ball. You wouldn't have forgotten that thank you note. You wouldn't have parented a child that way. Are you taking the bait? How many years have been lost because of the bait of bitterness? How many more will be lost? How many people have been impacted by the bitterness Because it's not just you, it's everybody who's observed you, and everyone around you, and everyone who's worked with you, and everyone who's married you, and everyone who's lived with you. How about gossip? How many morsels have you eaten? How many morsels have contributed to healthy relationships or destructive ones in your family? in your community, in your church, 
on Facebook. I don't talk about Facebook. And how about revenge? It's an amazing part in the book Screwtape Letters that I love where Uncle Screwtape is telling Wormwood that one of the ways you can trick human beings into being offended is by tying into their self-righteousness in a very subtle way. And I want Wormwood to describe it, but again, two things. Remember, when he's referencing Germans, this is written during the time of the Nazis, so everybody hated the Nazis. Number two, the human being that he's talking to is called a patient. And look at how he describes the best way to get people to feel offended is by tying into their self-righteousness in a very subtle and clever way. Let's watch as good old Screwtape talks to Wormwood again. There is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to the immediate neighbors whom he meets every day and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he does not know. Thus malice becomes wholly real and benevolence largely imaginary. (laughs) There's no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans if at the same time a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets on the train. I understand. Mm. No, you don't. So there's no point in pretending you do. Look, you must think of your man as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally, his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all the circles everything that smells of the enemy. You mean the Germans? No, no, not them. I mean the real enemy. Right. He wants virtues to permeate all of those circles within the patient, especially the will, while you must keep on shoving all the virtues outwards until they are finally located in the circle of fantasy. It is only when the virtues reach the will and are there embodied in habits that they are really fatal to us. So what does it look like to have things pushed out to your fantasy? Here's what it looks like. What Wormwood is saying, or what uh, Screwtape is saying to Wormwood is, when you can get a human being to say, I love mankind, I'm basically a good person who loves people, they will trick themselves into thinking that they are imaginarily loving people. Because they love mankind. They love the earth. They love generically people. And because they imagine themselves as good people who love people, they never really look at what they actually do to their neighbor, spouse, or parents. So it's the teenager who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I care about the earth. I care about the world. I care about people. And then you look at how they talk to their parents and like, like, I wouldn't even treat another human being that way, how you're talking. That is so disrespectful. That is so such disdain. There is such hatred in your tone. What are you talking about? I always talk that way. Just because it's a pattern doesn't make it good. But that same person, you say, are you basically a good person? I am basically a good person. And you fantasize the goodness into loving theoretical people while at the same time you're bitter, angry, gossipy toward the people who are actually around you. Wow, that, I do that all the time. I preach about goodness, and then I get impatient with my kids. Huh. And that is why the Bible offers a very unique solution to the problem in the human heart. 
that if you and I want to be unoffendable, if we want to be free, if we want to refuse to take the bait of Uncle Screwtape, I want you to try for one week. If you can't do it, try one day. If you want to try the black diamond approach, try a whole month. I want you to attempt for one day, one week, or one month to say, I'm going to be unoffendable and always amenable. Whatever the situation, whatever comes my way, no matter what happens, whatever is said, whatever I agree with or disagree with, I am going to attempt for a week, a month, a day, an hour if you need to, to get started. I'm going to be unoffendable and I'm going to always be amenable for this time period. Now here's why the Bible offers such a unique solution to this. The Bible says that what we have done, if we'd stop fantasizing about how good we are and stop looking at how not good we are, we'll realize that in general, you and I are very offensive to God. We offensively have ignored him. We offensively have replaced him with things like status, performance, money, fame, people's approval, far more important to us than God's opinion of us. So we've replaced God with something God made, and that is deeply offensive. The God who made us, created us, poured time and energy into us, and in general we're like, yeah, I showed up on Sunday for an hour. Um, you should be pretty happy. Most of my friends only are CEOs. You know, CEO is Christmas, Easter only. So, you know, I'm not a Christmas, Easter only. At least I'm coming here once a month. God, you ought to be happy to have me. That is so deeply offensive. In the same way that you love your kids, you've sacrificed for your kids, you've given everything to your kids, your heart's broken for your kids, you've prayed for your kids, and now the idea of going to dinner with you is so embarrassing. Could you drop me off like, like, like a quarter mile before school? Because I don't want to be seen with you. I mean, I'm like, right? And you're like, well, that, that's offensive. Well, we've done the same thing to God. And here's the point. God chose not to be offended at our offensive comments. He chose to not only not be offended, but to come to earth to die for our offensive actions, our offensive thoughts, our offensive behaviors. And when that becomes not a theory, but a personal conviction... You say, if I was so offensive and God forgave me, if I was so offensive and God chose not only not to be offended, but to forgive and to embrace and to befriend me, then how could I not do the same for others? How could I not love the offensive? How could I not forgive the offensive? How could I not practice what he says here? If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, in light of what God has done for you, Live peaceably with all men. About six months ago, my mom, I was reading a book. It's called uh, Lord Changed My Attitude. I called her this week and asked her the title of it. And she said, one of the things that struck her in this book is it says, here's two things you can do to change your life. Decide for a week, a month, or a day if you want to be free from guilt, be free from pain, be free from the trappings of, of, of being just weighed down all the time. Choose for one week, one month, one year. I'm not going to be offended. And I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to be complain. Maybe I'll try five minutes. What would your life be like if you could truly not be offended and not complain? And say, I'm going to be amenable that if at all possible, I'm going to try and make things work out without things getting hostile. Without a lawsuit. Without making a big deal. Without blowing up. Without sticking 20 comments on, on, on the Facebook post about why I cannot believe you'd ever like Obama or that you'd ever like Trump. I just, I just can't help myself. I have to say something. How'd that work out for you? A lot of people convinced by what you said? A lot of people drawn to unity because of what you wrote? No, but I had to say it. All right, well, you can do whatever you want. 
But what if we chose as a community to say, I'm going to be unoffendable and I'm going to be always amenable. Imagine the freedom you would experience. And I don't know that you can do it with willpower except that you ask God to remind you what He did for you in history on the cross and allow that to permeate your will and permeate your intellect and ultimately transform your heart. It's a choice. And we all have a choice to make. Will we give in to the temptations of screw tape and wormwood or will we find the freedom of forgiveness and joy? Let's pray. Father, I ask that each person that's here today, God, would experience the, at least the desire, the want to. Now, we know what we should do and what we have to do. But, God, I ask that each person here would reach out and ask you for the want to. To want to be free. To want to not step into these traps. To want to not take the bait. God, that we would create families and marriages and communities and workplaces that would be so permeated with a sweet smell of goodness and hope and joy that it would draw people to want what we are living. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here this week. We're going to continue next week uh, talking about something in Magical Mystery Tour. We'll see you then.